Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. It is Christmas Eve, in case you didn't realize it, and uh, and I, I've 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 heard. You know, <laughs> Churches have decisions to make, and, and you know, there's always a decision. Well, what are we going to do about Christmas Eve? And, uh, and I, I'm just, I'm firmly committed to meeting together on the Lord's Day. And I don't know if, it, if it's Christmas Eve. I don't care what the holiday is. If it's the Lord's Day, the, the body of Christ ought to gather together. I just think that's, uh, that's the thing. And, and if you've got family stuff going on, that's cool. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's, your, that's your conscience and your decision to make. But uh, I just think, uh, y'all, we went through COVID where they said we couldn't meet and man, it's, it's going to be, I'm going to be hard pressed to not get the, get the body together on the Lord's day. Uh, and so again, you want to stay home and, and do things that's, that's you, between you and the Lord. Uh, but, uh, but I just think that the church ought to gather on the Lord's day. Uh, so we will, and we are, and I'm glad that you are here, but it is Christmas Eve. And, and at first I was going to click pause on Jeremiah and say, you know, we're going to hang tight there and come back after the first of the year. Uh, But as I was praying through it, it occurred to me that the prophet Jeremiah has some things to say about Christmas. He, He is not quiet on the topic of the birth of the Messiah. Uh, and so, but I'm going to do it differently. So I, I, normally I'll start with the text and I'll work forward, but today I'm going to start forward and work backwards. Somebody said, are you going to speak backwards? Uh, no, because we're not a Pentecostal church and that would sound like I'm speaking in tongues and we wouldn't have interpretation and all that. So no, I'm not going to speak backwards, but we're going to build this in reverse. So, uh, so you guys hang with me in this. It's a little out of the box, but, uh, but this is the way that I'm going to tackle this today. We're working our way back to Jeremiah 23. So I am... I'm skipping forward in Jeremiah, but working backwards from Christmas Eve. So is everybody cool? Everybody got it? Great. Um, So what I want to do this morning is I want to start with the Christmas story that we're all very familiar with and that we are are experiencing today. And I want to work our way backwards into the book of Jeremiah. And one of the things that stands out to me as as I just reflect on the Christmas story is the familiarity of it. Uh, you know, we are very familiar with the Christmas story. Mary and Joseph, shepherds and angels, we got it. I mean, of all the stories in the Bible, we got the Christmas story. This is one that, that we understand. I was, I was reading over this passage on Thursday over at the memory care facility and in uh, Morning Point, and those folks can't remember much. They couldn't remember who I was from the previous week. But I'll tell you that when I started reading Luke chapter 2, they started reciting it with me. And so, again, we're familiar with this. We understand this. We see nativity scenes anywhere and everywhere. People who don't even go to church can fill in the blanks of the Christmas story. You might have to prompt them a little bit, but they can fill in the blanks of the Christmas story. And so when I was looking at trying to bridge the gap between Jeremiah and the Christmas story, I went back and just reread those first couple of chapters in Matthew and and Luke, and, and something stood out to me that I had not paid too much attention to before. Now, I mean, I've read the text. I've always been aware and cognizant of the details that are there. So it's not like there's a, you know, a surprise new story here that we're pulling out this morning. That's not it at all. Just, you know how you're reading the scripture and sometimes in seasons things jump out that have been there all along, but sometimes they jump out more than others. And and it's just the Holy Spirit working to illuminate his word in our heart. And so as I was thinking through this and I was reading through it through the lens of Jeremiah, the the details that came into focus for me was a significant role, here's a groan, 
the significant role that politics played in the birth of the Savior. Oh, pastor, it's Christmas Eve. Can we please not talk about politics? I don't think it's a stretch to say that we have a very different Christmas story if not for the impact of the politics in Matthew chapter one and Luke chapter two. Now, I know we're not supposed to talk about politics during the holidays, and I would encourage you that when you gather around your Christmas table tomorrow, that the political conversation of our current moment is probably not the best thing to bring up in celebration of the birth of the Savior. But when it's Bible politics, we get a pass. So let's get started this morning, but we're going to pray first. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Father, for how it speaks to us, and I thank you, Lord, for even things like politics that are kind of cringy today, Lord, uh, they help us understand what's happening in your word and help us to make sense of it. So Lord, I pray that we would handle this well as we work our way back into the prophet Jeremiah today. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna start in Luke. Okay, Luke chapter two, Linus from the stage. You guys know this story. You can, you, can, you can probably quote it if I were to start reciting it. You've got shepherds and angels, Mary and manger. You got all the bits and pieces here. And truth be told, it is beautiful. It is a beautiful story. It's peaceful. It's Noel. It's silent night. It's harking and heralding angels. I mean, you guys know this story. You know it well. And it's the last place that you'd think politics would show up except it isn't. The drama of Luke's story is created because of the political machinations of the Roman Empire. Let's take a look at the first couple of verses of Luke chapter two. They'll be on the screen there. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. See, when you read this, there's no escaping the politics of Christmas. The, the story's introduced in a political context. Now, when we talk about the politics of Christmas today, we're jaded because we think of Starbucks cups and holiday trees, and then we think, do we, you know, are they saying happy holidays or Merry Christmas? I'm glad that stuff's kind of gone by the wayside. We're not talking about nativity scenes on the courthouse lawn. We're not talking about that sort of stuff. What we've got in Luke chapter two is down and dirty, nitty gritty politics. C-SPAN would be covered at Fox News would have opinions about it. This is the reality of what Luke gives us in chapter two. And right off the bat, there's two politicians that are mentioned in the text. Before you ever get Jesus introduced to us in the flesh, we've already got politicians in the story. Caesar Augustus and Quirinius the governor. You dig into this text a little bit deeper and you find historians kind of disagree on exactly what was happening in the larger context of the Roman Empire during this time. But one thing stands out in all of the secular histories of the day is that Quirinius was more than just a timestamp in the text. He was a major player in what's happening in this time. But why is census? Well, why do we conduct censuses? Yeah, everybody loves the census when they come and knock on your door and want you to tell them all the things about what's going on in your house and all. Everybody loves that. That's a good, warm, fuzzy feeling when they come by and ask you those questions. Why, why do we conduct censuses? It's all about politics. We want to know how to draw the lines. And there's nothing more political than how we draw our lines, right? And, and which house goes this way and which house goes that way. I mean, that's all just political conversation. But why would Rome do a census? 
I would believe that they're probably wanting to make sure that the proportionate amount of taxation is coming into the coffers of the Roman Empire. There's a certain number of people in Judea, and so there's a certain amount of tax that ought to be flowing in to the coffers of the Roman Empire. Judea's got a million people. I don't know how many it had. There ought to be a certain amount of revenue coming in from those million people, and if not, we need to recruit some more tax collectors. And guess what you find later in the Gospels? You find tax collectors. It's, it's the same as it is today. It was, the old, it was the old form of the internal revenue service. But not only that, I suspect Rome probably wanted to know the number of people in any given region so they could be prepared to deal with any domestic situations that unfolded. We might need a few extra legions there in Jerusalem based on what the last census told us. Whatever the reason, I'm not in Rome and we're not sure, but whatever reason, this political act created a significant disruption in the, the flow of, of what was happening in the Christmas story. One historian suggested that a thorough census could take up to 40 years to complete because they didn't have the internet to click submit. They didn't have the, the mail service to, to deliver it to your post box, your, your mailbox. And so it could have taken a long time to complete a census. Now, there's nothing for us to believe that Caesar or Quirinius were God-fearing Gentiles. They are very likely pagans just like all the other rulers in that day and time. But there's also no denying the fact that their maneuvering, their political actions were instrumental in the advent of our Savior. Why? Because Joseph and Mary were heading to their hometown so they could be registered and they could be counted. Without that... You don't have the Christmas story unfolding as we know it today. And of course, Luke fills in details about the birth of Jesus and likely he interviewed Mary herself and got that information. And so we see politics are very much moving the, the, the story forward in Luke chapter two. Well, let's go backwards uh, uh, to, to Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel goes backwards in the text, so we go back to the beginning of the New Testament, but Matthew's Christmas story fast-forwards a little bit from Bethlehem in the manger. We get to Matthew's gospel, and, and he gives us some details that Luke either did not know or chose not to include. And so in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, we read these words. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, magi, came from the east to Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. But when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, so, for so it is written by the prophets, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he, had sent to and he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I may come and worship him. Herod brings a whole new ruthless dimension to the politics of Christmas. Herod is a ruthless ruler. We look at Luke and we've got Quirinius and Caesar and they're far removed from the conversation. They're, they're, they're simply these high-level political officials. They're, they're, they're not involved intimately with this, with this situation. Their political decisions were consequential, but they had no direct contact with these characters. Quirinius never met the baby. Caesar probably never even heard of the events that took place that night. Herod, though, Herod's a different story. He was a king, 
that didn't amount to much in the Roman Empire. The, the king in the Roman Empire was kind of like the prime minister of Russia. I mean, there is one. Did you know that? There is a prime minister in Russia, but nobody knows who he is. I mean, I had to look him up to see what his name was. You don't know who he is. He doesn't amount to much. Everybody knows that Vladimir Putin is in charge of Russia. Herod was a king, but his purpose was to help the citizens of Judea feel better about their situation. But ultimately, Herod served at the pleasure of Caesar. And Herod was a bad, bad man. Herod's function, he, he, he lived to, to be deceitful and dishonest. Herod's number one priority was what? Herod. His number one priority was himself. And he was willing to crush anything and everything that threatened his illegitimate rule or test the limits of his power. And he's really just a puppet. He's a king on a string. But there's few things more dangerous than a puppet who doesn't realize that he's actually attached to the strings. And we know the story. This is a story we know well. It's a tragic story. Herod tries to manipulate the magi. He, he, he feigns the heart of a worshiper. What a, what a terrible way to, to fool people, to, to pretend to be a worshiper but to want nothing to do with worship, to, to, to fill in that, that gap but want nothing to do with it. And as much guile as Herod had, he could not outsmart the God of heaven and the God of earth. And the actions of this politician are some of the most notorious in the Bible. In an attempt to protect his vassal kingdom, he becomes the dark fulfillment of one of Jeremiah's most tragic prophecies. He orders in Bethlehem the execution of every child two and under. It's one of the most tragic, evil events that you could imagine. But just like so many other evil, vile men throughout history, his lust for power knew no limits. Thankfully, he would pay for his wickedness. Herod would shortly after the death of the innocents develop a disease that the Jewish historian Josephus called Herod's evil. And I can just assure you that if the doctor looks at you and says, I'm sorry to tell you, you've got Herod's evil, it's a bad day for you. It's a very bad day for you. Josephus stated that the pain of his illness was so bad that Herod actually tried to attempt suicide by stabbing himself. It's not a great way to try to commit suicide. He tried to commit suicide by stabbing himself and it was his cousin who actually intervened. Historians have determined that Herod very likely died from some sort of kidney infection related to a disease known as Fournier's gangrene. You don't know what that is. I'm not telling you today. Google will tell you. I'm not telling you today. I'm not going into details this Christmas morning, but let me just say this. He suffered great shame and horrific pain during his finals day, final days. And I would add to that that the way he died would be a very appropriate way to bring about the demise of anyone who would choose to hurt a child. And I'll leave it there. Herod's ruthless politics had an unmistakable impact on the story of our Savior's birth. But the politics of Herod led directly to the fulfillment of another prophecy that was related to the Messiah. Matthew chapter 2 verse 15 says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Now we think about this political thing and, and it reminds us of a couple of things and this is important for us today. And the first thing is this, God is not thwarted by human agents. God's plan and God's purposes are not thwarted by any politician, by any human agent. It doesn't matter how wicked or ruthless they are. It doesn't matter how pagan or pretentious they are. 
I'm not denying that these individuals and entities brought about their fair share of suffering and hardship, but they were not derailing God's plans and purposes. God's plans and purposes could not be thwarted by the work of these political entities. We may not understand all of it. We may not understand the workings of all of it. But the fact of the matter is, is, is God's purposes and plans cannot be thwarted by the workings of individuals that we've discussed today. I think even today about the misery that, that's going on in parts of the world, like with Ukraine and in other parts of the world. And I don't pretend to understand the purpose of the fighting and suffering from an eternal standpoint. That's above my pay grade to figure out. But I'm in certainly no, in no position to doubt that God ret- remains faithful and that God is in charge of the ultimate outcome. I believe that. I believe that's what the word of God teaches and I believe that's what we can stand on today. Secondly, though, we're reminded that our hope cannot be built on institutions that are led by these human agents. They are flawed at best and they are the epitome of evil at worst. If there's a human institution that's got people in charge of it, I can promise you that it is not perfect and it is flawed in some nature or, an, or, or another. There's not a perfect church. There's not a perfect government. There's not a perfect business. Chick-fil-A's close, but it's not there yet. We aren't perfect and any human institution that's led by people is imperfect. It is flawed at best. And, in the, and at the worst, it's the epitome of evil. And regardless of what office somebody holds, those entities do not hold the keys to the kingdom of God. God has given the keys to the kingdom to the gospel. The gospel is preached and that's how the keys of the kingdom are, are spread. And the church has been called to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the one source of hope that we have. In a world that's filled with hopelessness, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom of our, of our Savior, that is where our hope is found. Now, let's hop in our time machines. Let's leave behind our mangers and our magi for a few minutes. And let's go back in time about 600 years to the final days of the kingdom of Judah. And what we find in those latter days is another intersection of politics, failed diplomacy, and the words of a weeping prophet. I want to look specifically at one politician, he's a king. He was known as King Zedekiah. And King Zedekiah goes down in history, he's got, a, he's got a, a, a famous reputation. He is the last king of Judah before Judah was captured and destroyed by Babylon. And King Zedekiah's story is scattered across some places in the Old Testament. Second Kings, Second Chronicles tells the story. We're gonna encounter King Zedekiah in a couple different places as we work through Jeremiah. But I wanna take just a look at the synopsis of King Zedekiah given to us in Second Chronicles. It's in Second Chronicles 36 and it picks up in verse 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their father, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. That last phrase, no turning back. It's the end of the story. There's nothing left for you. 
King Zedekiah will show up again in Jerusalem or in Jeremiah, but suffice it to say, his life is well summarized by that opening statement there, which is also echoed in 2 Kings 24. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It isn't hard to find an evil king in the Old Testament. Now, there's certainly exceptions to the rule. There were those who tried to do right, but over and over again, the statement that could be placed on the tombstone of almost every king that you encounter in the Old Testament, he did evil. He did evil. And Zedekiah is one of Jeremiah's chief antagonists. Here's some of the things that Zedekiah did to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 37, we find out that Zedekiah placed Jeremiah in a dungeon. Again, that's not a way to make friends and influence people. Uh, In Jeremiah 38, we find out that Zedekiah threw Jeremiah into a cistern. He threw him into a well. Uh, Again, if, if you are wanting to show me that you don't particularly care for me, throw me into a well. It will be communicated clearly at that point. The final king of Judah, though, met his demise as he attempted to flee from the king of Babylon. He tried to get out of town, and Nebuchadnezzar chased him down. They were captured nearby, and here's what the Babylonians did to Zedekiah. Zedekiah, they killed all of Zedekiah's sons in front of him. He had to watch it happen. The last thing he saw was his sons being killed by the king of Babylon, and then they gouged out his eyes and sent him to Babylon. Merry Christmas. But this has been the pattern for the people. This has been the pattern for the people. Again, just think about the timeline, working backwards. Zedekiah was an evil king. He reigned for 11 years. His brother Jehoiachin reigned before him. He reigned for 100 days. He was evil. Their father's name was Jehoiakim. He reigned for 11 years. He was evil. His brother Jehoahaz reigned for three months. He was evil. Josiah was a bright spot in the family. He reigned for 31 years and he tried to correct all the ills of his father and grandfather. Josiah's father, Amon, reigned for two years. He was evil. And Amon's father, Manasseh, reigned for 55 years. And guess what? He was evil. Manasseh built pagan altars in the temple of God. He offered his sons and daughters as burnt offerings. He was into the occult. Manasseh was captured by the Assyrians and tortured, and only then did he repent and turn to the Lord. But the damage of his rule was done. I could do this all day. The list goes on for a really long time. But the lifetime of Jeremiah's contemporaries was marked by wicked ruler after wicked ruler after wicked ruler. With the exception of Josiah, the kings of Judah were complete and total failures. This is me setting the stage. Because the text I want to look at to end with this morning is in Jeremiah 23. The stage is set, I feel kind of cruddy now, like like this has been rough. Look at Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Man, God is good. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his day, Judah will be saved and all Israel will dwell securely and this is the name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Isn't that a breath of fresh air? In the middle of of all of this evil and all of this iniquity, here is a precious breath of fresh air from the prophet. There is coming a day where there will be one who will reign, a righteous branch will reign. 
and he will reign as king and he will deal wisely and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. His name is the Lord, is our righteousness. This is good news, church, in the middle of a perverse and corrupt generation. It is good news that there is a righteous branch who is reigning and ruling. See, Jeremiah's audience is all too familiar with the failure of David's sons. They missed the mark. They failed the assignment. And in the process, over the course of generations, these these sons of David managed to drag what was once a glorious kingdom into complete and utter destruction and have left it at the hands of the nations around them. And even the people living 600 years after Jeremiah were living under the authority of a foreign power and his puppet ruler. They were watching as their children were sacrificed and their nations suffered under the despotism of flawed rulers. And dare I go so far as to say that the same has proven itself to be true over and over and over again. If you want to be let down by someone in high office, just be patient. I can promise you it's coming. But Jeremiah calls us to stop looking at our own rulers for deliverance and start looking at a better branch. Jeremiah says that the Lord will raise up a righteous branch because this has been the problem with all of David's sons. They are not righteous. Even the ones who did right were not righteous because every king, every politician, every ruler who has ever lived, whether he be despot, dictator, democratic, republican, or royalty, they all have this in common. They are not righteous. But God says through the prophet, that there is finally coming a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely. Even as much much good as King Josiah did, he died on the battlefield as a result of a very unwise decision. Even Solomon in all of his wisdom found himself on the wrong end of folly. Jeremiah goes on to describe the nature of the better branches reign. But look at the last lines of verse six. He says, and this is the name which, by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is why the righteous branch that's promised to us here is so much greater than any other ruler because the king promised in Jeremiah 23 doesn't just do righteous, he is righteous. And that's exactly what we need. Jeremiah actually here is making a play on the king's name because Zedekiah means righteous is the Lord. And when you look at Zedekiah's life, there's no denying he certainly wasn't righteous. There wasn't anything righteous about him. But by playing on Zedekiah's name, Jeremiah is declaring something of absolute importance. The Lord is our righteousness. One commentator said that he would be exactly the opposite of the kind of ruler we've come to expect in the world. He would be the antithesis of Zedekiah, but here's the catch. I don't know if you remember the sermon from a couple of weeks ago in Jeremiah 5 where the prophet was commissioned to go find a good man. He looked high and low, looked in the the wealthy places, looked in the poor places, and he could not find a righteous man. He could not find a good man anywhere in Jerusalem. Because here's the hook. It's not just the politicians who miss the mark. It's not just those in high authority who come up short. Because the fact of the matter is, we all come up short so it isn't 
It isn't that we only need a righteous king to rule righteously. We need to be a righteous citizenry as well. And what we actually find happening here is that Jeremiah finally found the man he was looking for in chapter five in the promised Messiah. But that man wasn't in the palace. He wasn't in the marketplace. Instead, that man was found in Bethlehem's manger and on Calvary's cross. That man that Jeremiah found is the good shepherd when he criticizes the shepherds of Israel in chapter 23. That man that he found is the son of David. He is a wise king and he will be righteous for his people. His righteousness gets credited to our account though on behalf of what he accomplishes. Every one of these promises that we see here have been fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is righteous for his people. His righteousness belongs to us. His righteous deeds fulfill the law that we could never keep and his righteous sufferings satisfy the atonement that we could never pay. If you trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, then his righteousness belongs to you and you will be righteous in God's sight forever. Romans chapter three, verse 22 says this, the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And we are reminded yet again at Christmas that our hope must be pointed in the right direction. Because our hope in this life is not found in any king or ruler. Our hope in this life cannot be found in any sort of political potentials. And it wouldn't matter if the president were a resurrected Billy Graham or Charles Spurgeon. Unless King Jesus is in that seat, there's no lasting hope to be found there. But more than that, your hope can't be based in your own self either. Because you have to look to something greater than yourself. We have to look to the one who doesn't just do right, but the one who is right. Because we need righteousness that can only come from Christ, which is why that branch is named, the Lord is our righteousness. And the only one who fits that description, well, his name is Jesus. And he was born on that first Christmas morn in a manger in a Bethlehem stable. I would offer you today, if you've not given your life to Jesus, if you've not trusted in Jesus, if your hope is not fixed in Jesus, that on this Christmas Eve, that you would give your life to Jesus and that you would let him be your source of hope. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way in which it is knit together that the Old Testament prophets pointed to Jesus. And we continue to look to Jesus. Lord, we still repeat the same mistakes of so many of old. We try to fix our hope in institutions that cannot save. We try to place our hope in people who are not righteous. And Lord, our hope, our, our joy, our confidence can only be found in Christ and Christ alone. Our righteousness can only be secured by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that our life eternal is only guaranteed by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I thank you today that on this Christmas Eve, we have a Savior who paid the price for our sins, who, who did that which we could never do. He gave his life for us. 
that we might have our relationship with God restored and that we might be able to live forever. Lord, I pray today that if there's any in this room that their hope is misplaced, it's misdirected, it's aimed in the wrong direction. That God, today they would stop looking to a a capital, that they would stop looking to an office, and that they would start looking to a savior, a righteous branch whose name is Jesus. And I pray today, Father, if there's any in this room who have not given their life to Christ, if they've not yet placed their faith and trust in him, that today on this Christmas Eve, that you would show yourself faithful, that you would save those today who are lost, that they would put their faith and trust in Christ and be delivered. We love you and thank you for your word today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.